Yeah, you know, it's always good to give thanks for the freedom. You know, there was an article the other day, I didn't get to read a lot of it, but uh, in fact, I think I only read the headline <laughs> that, that Christian persecution is reaching near genocide levels in a number of countries. No idea we have. No idea whatsoever. And it would be great if we discipline ourselves to pray for those brothers and sisters around the world, you know? If you don't, maybe try to find a way to remember to do that. It's awful. It's absolutely awful um, what's happening to them, but um, and it's relevant. Uh, I want to mention a resource before we begin. I don't commend many resources, but I came across one recently. It's one of the best things I've seen in my Christian walk. It's called The Bible Project. And what it is is all seven, eight-minute videos, a couple of guys that are uh, rich in their theology and in their ability to animate. Um, I would really highly recommend it. Um, I can see young people liking it a lot because it's sort of the whole animation thing and the whole approach to it. But I think even old people, you know, like me and older, not younger like Kim. The Bible Project. That's the name of the website. The Bible Project. Okay, so this week we're in the book of Hebrews still, chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. Let's call this study... Run with endurance the grace set before us. Run with endurance the grace set before us. Let's read it. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The great concern of this book. What, what is the great concern that the author has been repeatedly expressing in this letter. What is the author's great concern in this letter? That's a question for you all. Yeah, Mark. That the people he was writing to would return to Judaism and uh, really renounce Christianity. Yeah, yeah, right. Just just to apostatize, right? Um, and and he just keeps bringing that up in a number of different ways. That's this letter was, is so deeply pastoral because he's afraid that Christians are going to... the people in the body are going to apostatize. They're going to leave Christ. Uh, what are some of the things that this author has used to get that message across? What, what are some of the things we've seen so far? Well, yeah. Highlighted the superiority of Christ over everything. Yes, right. First and foremost. Which is an excellent point because that's sort of... If we miss that in this book, we miss everything. There's no sense talking about any approach to not apostatizing if we can't talk first and foremost about the supremacy of Christ. Right? That's how the whole book starts out. It started out that way for a reason, right? The, the, the author knew something was really up and that he had to drive that home. That's where he had to start. That's where he had to proceed. That's where he had to finish. Um, has so far, so you know, we're almost through this. Has this study in the book of Hebrews changed anything for you? Or have you learned anything new or different? What about the book of Hebrews do you see now that you didn't see before? Or has it ministered to you in any particular way? 
that has impacted your life. Otherwise, all of us who have done the teaching will just feel like we've let you down once again. <laughs> yeah, Wally. The um, purposefulness of discipline. Hmm. The purposefulness of discipline. Okay, good. Anything else? Anything else? Anything that Hebrews is, has done for you in terms of thinking about the gospel? If it hasn't, that's okay, because I'm going to try to recapitulate that in today's message anyway, in today's lesson. So. That has an answer. Um, yeah. Don't take your eyes off of Jesus. Yeah, man. Don't take your eyes off Jesus. You're in a race. Yeah, that's a big one. Mm-hmm. Don't take your eye off Jesus. Jesus is better than. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yep, Jesus is better than fill in the blank. And again, the great the great concern is of apostasy, failing to believe in the gospel of God's grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sounds very basic, but it's something that Christians struggle with all the time. I think that's why it's part of the canon of Scripture. Because God knew that 2,000 years into this wonderful redemption, reconciling all things to Himself project, there was going to be this problem. And he's told the readers wonderful things again about Jesus as great high priest of a new, better covenant, a new and better sacrifice, a new and better way. And that faith is the way of access to all of that. Grace working through faith. God's grace works out our faith. Thinking of changing the words of the song, grace, grace, God's grace, the grace, grace, difficult grace. <laughs> Difficult grace of our loving Lord. <laughs> grace is a tough concept to grasp. It just is. doesn't matter why. We don't have to try to figure out why. I mean, we, we, we basically know why. There's a part of us that remains, at times, some not fully sold on the gospel. And we know that because there's little nuances of us that think we somehow can still earn God's favor if we, if we do this, we do this, we do this. Tony. I think that's directly tied to our our pride. And we, we do things and we deserve things and we get things for the good things that we do. Okay. Yeah. I think pride is a biggie. The book of Hebrews is an extremely dangerous book in one sense. In the wrong hands. The Christians can too easily take off our gospel glasses. See, time goes on. My vision isn't getting any better. Over the years, I used, to re- I used to just need my glasses for reading. As time went on, it was getting a little tougher to see the road signs. The television, didn't matter if we went from a 21-inch screen to a 32-inch screen. Things were still a little foggy. Right? Now I need them all the time. Now I have what's called progressive lenses. Okay? Uh, and progressive rens- lenses, basically I have like three different powers of, of uh, prescription in my lenses. Okay? And this, so I can see what is near... And I can see what is far, but I always have to sort of adjust my view. So sometimes I get to look up a little, sometimes I get to look down a little. And there's a difference, it's very subtle. Bifocals are a little bit like this, but it's not quite as. You know, bifocals, all you do is move your eyeballs down, right? Well, you just look down to the bifocals. So I have what I want to also call progressive gospel lenses. So I have to adjust my view, I tilt my head to see the beauty and the primacy of Christ and his love the fellowship of the saints, the fatherhood of God, all these things. 
And the gospel lenses allow me to see the warnings as grace and the encouragements as grace. Without progressive gospel lenses, there are things written in the book of Hebrews intended to remind us of the grace of God that trigger our sense of works righteousness. I'll give you a few examples. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury that will consume the adversaries. And if we don't understand what this is talking about, we could catch ourselves saying, I sin deliberately. Most of my sins are deliberate. I don't accidentally sin a lot. And neither do any of you wretches. Right? (laughs) We don't accidentally sin a whole lot. Most of the sins we commit are quite deliberate. Meaning, we know when we're about to say something we shouldn't say. We know when we ought to shut up. We know when we ought not watch this thing because it's unhealthy for us. We may we know, right? Um, so the question is, oh no! So we read it that way. So if we go on, let's say it's um, let's say it's <clears throat> it's um, I don't know, being miserable at something. Let's say, let's say, well, let's be be real specific. Let's just say lying, okay? If we go on lying deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. If we go on uh, taking the Lord's name, well, I don't want to say it that way because I don't see taking the Lord's name in vain the way 90% of other people do. So I don't want to use that one. Um, Watching watching shows you shouldn't watch, okay? Um, Let me really be, let me be bold here and say the Game of Thrones. If we go on watching the Game of Thrones deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, I don't pick on anything anyone watches, but you would have to really convince me that a Christian can safely watch the Game of Thrones. I remember watching one episode once because I was curious, and I said, this is soft porn. And I've read a number of articles that say the same thing. So if you watch that, and you can watch that, you've got a power, okay, a power that I don't have and I don't want, because I, don't, I just don't want to be near that stuff. So, that's not the point of this passage. But we can turn it into that. And we can be worried all the time about, oh no, I, I did that sin. Or, oh, yeah. No. There's a very particular sin here. And that's the sin of unbelief. That is the sin the book of Hebrews is addressing. Unbelief. Here's another one. Hebrews 12.1. has the same thing in common. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the rate is set before us. Again, if we go in here just sort of plugging in any particular sin, oh, what's, what's the sin that easily besets you? What's the sin that this and that? We find ourselves, we're going to find ourselves in a very legalistic position, always wondering if we've ceased in that enough, if, we're, if we haven't ceased in enough, <clears throat> are we okay with God, etc. Uh, unfortunately, the, the ESV here does not translate that well. Because uh, according to what I'm able to study, there's a definite article there before sin, so it should be the sin. And thus sin in the book of Hebrews is unbelief and apostasy. It's that simple. But you can understand then how we could easily turn the book of Hebrews and passages like this into, rather than promoting the grace of God, completely tripping us up into being so self-introspective about the sins that we commit and everything and wondering if we please God enough, wondering if there's enough grace. or Does this sin mean I'm not going to make it all the way to the end? We turn the book of Hebrews into the very thing that it's trying to turn us away from which is dependence on anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And the scripture goes on to say there, 
Um, it talks about, uh, was, I think this was back in, in 27. Uh, I'll go on a little bit. Uh, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think we will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? That's the great sin in the book of Hebrews, is outraging the Spirit of grace. We have to always remind ourselves and come back to this. And the reason why the, uh, the author starts out the way he does is because he starts out with showing us the supremacy of Christ and all things grace and a new and better covenant and everything else so that we'll see it for what it is. Grace, Tony. And like um, probably you and others have explained before, is that in the Old Testament, it wasn't that it was broken, it didn't work. It did do what it was supposed to do but it did not atone for sin. No, that the covenant itself did not. No, it didn't. Um, Horatius Bonar, great old name, from God's way of holiness. Terror accomplishes no real obedience. Suspense brings forth no fruit unto holiness. No gloomy uncertainty as to God's favor can subdue one lust. What, a, what an insightful brother. No gloomy uncertainty as to God's favor can subdue one lust or correct our crookedness of will. But the free pardon of the cross uproots sin, withers all its branches. Only the certainty of love, forgiving love, can do this. And that's what we have revealed in the gospel of God's grace. Otherwise, we spend all the time wondering, 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 wondering. Uncomfortable, uncomfortable, uncomfortable. And there are many churches that preach sanctification in such a way that turns people and just has them in a constant state of anxiety about these things. Am I doing enough? Grace, grace, difficult grace. And there's a few, there's a few verses in our study this week that are like that as well. Okay? If we're not careful, we see the text out of gospel focus. And I'll flag those as such as we proceed through it. Uh, last week, uh, Todd's teaching on the discipline of the Lord, right, in the prior verses, we saw that part of the fatherhood of God is training. It's instruction. It's what's called discipline. The, the di- discipline of the Lord. And the question was raised last week, how do I know if a circumstance is God's discipline or not? That question was asked. And I wondered... I wondered then and I wondered throughout the week if the question behind that question was how do I know if the discipline is for something I have done wrong or not? Because it's too easy to think of discipline only in that little way. Now Todd went beyond that. He, did, he, he, he brought that out of the text. right? That, and that just leaves us guessing, doesn't it? For them we would have to ask well, then does God allow us to get away with certain things? I mean, if I'm not disciplined for every sin... Oh, does God discipline me in ways I don't know? Well, that's foolish. Right? Do I, what, what sins does God discipline me for? I mean, okay, so this happened. So, oh man, I got that red light. Now I'm going to be five minutes late for work. Is that because I had a lustful thought ten minutes ago? I mean, you know, right? Or, or you, know, um, you know, something happens you know, at work or something happens you know, at home. The, the, the water doesn't work on a Sunday morning before church. Right? Oh, oh no, is that, is that because of something I said to my wife yesterday? What's... What a way to live. I mean, that's living with spiritual AIDS. Right? So, we can't think of discipline and punishment in that restricted sense. 
And, and Todd discussed that. Again, that broader understanding of discipline as training last week, right? Recall that. So the, the Hebrews were struggling with persecution big time. Okay? And the persecution was God's discipline. It wasn't punishment for some sin. God permitted the intense persecution of His people as part of their training. And we, we had some sports metaphors that were helpful last week too. God saw that, for whatever reason, as needful for them. Right? He, he knew them individually and corporately. He knew that individual, he knew every individual in that makeup of that Hebrew body, and he knew the corporate dynamic of that body. Right? In, in ways that only God can know. And God tailors the he tailors the you know, I go to physical therapy right now, and my program of um, of getting everything back the way it's supposed to be is different than the next guy that might walk in or lady with a similar problem. Okay? And the problem for me is my mechanics aren't quite right. I'm, I'm quad dominant. I'm not, I'm not engaging my glutes and my core enough and, and all this stuff, right? But for other people, it might be that they're, you know, they're, they're runners. They're not doing something quite the right way. So God knows exactly what the individual and the, and the group dynamic is and He knows how to do it. But he knows how to provide the discipline necessary, the spiritual therapy necessary for us. Uh, back in verse 10, another verse that Todd covered well, uh, God wants us to share in His holiness. Well, what holiness is that? Whose holiness does God accept? Jesus Christ. Eh, whose obedience does God accept? Right. Right? See, God's not counting on your holiness. I got news for me. <laughs> and for you. God is not counting on your holiness in the slightest bit, and He's not counting on your obedience in the slightest bit. I was talking to the sales manager at work this week. Uh, it's very culturally Catholic. I forget what the topic was, why it came up, but he said something like, oh, you know, and it was in reference to sin and whatnot, but he said, I say my prayers every night. And, and he was saying it in such a way he could tell that that somehow promoted his okayness. And I said, every time you think you're okay with God because you say a prayer, you dug your hole deeper. <laughs> See? <laughs> you, you, you can't do that. And then I got a little carried away and I went on to tell him I don't believe Roman Catholicism. <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe Roman Catholicism is Christian. Uh, I, I said the papacy. Is, yeah. I, said, I said we see nothing in Scripture about the papacy. We see nothing about a, a, a separate, priest, separate priesthood, the separate, all those things which just bury grace, right? Um, anyway, I'm sure I gave him something to think about. He, he's, he, he's known me for a long time. The only way to share in God's holiness is united to Christ, and if we get away from that. Right? Through faith, through believing. That's how we share in that holiness. And God grants circumstances that will draw out our faith. Right? And that will grow our faith. It'll, it'll exercise it. God grants us for the sake of Christ, not only to believe in Christ, but suffering for His sake. Okay? Or as um, the paraphrase, the message puts it this way. There's far more to this life than trusting Christ. That's a little over the top. That's why paraphrases are dangerous. There's far more to this life, or can be, dangerous if not if you don't have a, a, a literal like a, a you know there's different forms of translation and paraphrases can be very tricky they can nuance just the author's preference and stray from the text but they can be helpful too anyway there's far more to this life than trusting in Christ there's also suffering for him and the suffering is as much a gift as the trusting I like that I like the way that's worded 
Why? Because it's, as, as the scripture says last week, this is why it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness for those who are trained by it, for those who benefit by it. Right? Remember way back in chapter 5, there are things that these Hebrews should have known, but they had become dull of hearing. They had become dull of hearing. And, and they should have been sort of able to sort of be eating strong meat, but they were still in need of milk. And so, God used a certain process of discipline. I'm sure He used persecution to sort of refine that some, to discipline them, to train them in righteousness, to get them out of this. And right after that came the serious warning of the chapter 6 apostatizing. So, Hebrews are struggling with persecution. Um, so since this is true, right, which is what we start with the text this week, therefore, I'd like to put the words in, since this is so, right, knowing this, we can, we can lift up the drooping hands and the weak knees. And again, this is a return to the running the race metaphor. Right? Um, there's something about seeing the finish line when you're a runner. And there's other things in other people's lives. I mean, runners don't have exclusive rights to, you know, going for it. Uh, but, you know, the legs do get tired. And the arms do get tired because they're constantly going. You know, and you start to get up around the 10 and 11 mile mark. And then you start to get up around the 17 mile mark. That's the furthest I've gone. But, you know, people that not only do 26 mile marathons, but do 50 and 100 mile marathons, right? Once you see that finish line, you know you're down to the last mile. All of a sudden, those wobbly knees and legs. Look at the last finish that we just had in the Boston Marathon. You see the Ethiopian in, in the... Um, in the uh, where, where was the other guy from? What are the two countries that win? Kenya. Kenya. So the Ethiopian and the Kenyan, right? There's an Ethiopian and a Kenyan at a marathon. Sounds like a joke, right? <laughs> and they're coming down after 26 miles. And all of a sudden, they're neck and neck for the last 500 yards. And one of them is able to just open it up in a way the other one can't. Well, where did that come from? Seeing it as God's grace. Seeing the persecution, seeing all these things as all part of God's grace... That gives us the lift so that the author can say, so therefore, strengthen those weak knees and get those arms going again. Um. No! <laughs> <laughs> what timing? He didn't like this. <laughs> in, in other words, in other words, now that you know what your experience is not some terrible thing, but the grace of God, let your strength be renewed. I wonder, I wonder if the author of this letter had this verse in mind from Jeremiah. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Why? Because their hope is in the Lord. They were under some really intense stuff. They were in you know, exile. and That was a terrible thing. That uh, what is what is that which is lame in, in the straight path? It says here, uh, make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. What what do you suppose is lame, and, and what and what is the, the straight path? Do you suppose? What's lame? How have they become lame, and and, and what what what's what's up with the path not being straight or or clear or passable? And, and part of it, yes, Mark. Maybe if the uh, if we lose sight of the light that is on that the Lord provides on our path, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Rolling an ankle. Yeah, it, it, a lot of it has to do with the very things that they're struggling over. Is this idea of, you know, why were they tempted again? Why were they tempted to go back to Judaism to begin with? Yeah. Trials, tribulations, yeah. Uh, sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, all those things. Uh, which come from, and which things trip us up because we don't realize the grace of God. You know, when we don't realize that the gospel is a gospel of grace when things aren't difficult, we're going to have a very hard time believing it's a gospel of grace when things aren't difficult. I, I, I mean, are difficult, right? So, and that's why, you know, this author knows that they were not seeing the gospel of God's grace the way they should. He knew the persecution was there. He heard whatever he heard, saw whatever he saw, and he said, this is a raging, serious problem going on here. This is... Uh, this is uh, potentially apocalyptic for a number of people that are in this body. And so again, it comes at them with the gospel of God's grace in the new covenant. Um, so, and I think also uh, this has to do with mutual faith, mutual gospel faith and encouragement because I think the um, make straight paths is not just for each individual to do and, and, and uh, be careful that that which is sort of lame is not put out of joint altogether is a body function as well. Uh, verse 14. And this is one of those verses I mentioned I would flag that we must see correctly, right? Uh, with, with gospel progressive lenses. Say verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You can't divorce this from the context of the whole book. They are being told to strive for peace. Now, what does this not mean? Again, if we think of it in terms of our personal sins and things we struggle with, we are never, ever going to be comfortable. Our legs will be out of joint. They, our arms will be drooping. All of this will continue to be true. The path won't be clear. We'll be stumbling. We'll be rolling the ankles and everything else. If we read this to say, you know, you have to live at peace with everyone and you have to have that personal holiness or you won't see the Lord. Well, first of all, that contradicts the gospel. All right? That turns holiness into a work. They're being told to strive for peace with those who are persecuting them. I think that's the reason for the everyone there. Look at the way Jesus did. Continue, look at the way Jesus models that for us. And that's done through faith. You know, They're being told to strive for peace with those persons. That takes a lot of faith. And we had better know the goodness and the grace of God that this persecution is going to happen especially to those that are living in the realm of grace. Yes. Was the word pursue, would that not necessarily mean look to or seek? Yeah. Desire I, to? Yeah. So yeah, definitely. We, have, we should always, I don't think it does contradict the Bible because we're looking to, we have the desire to have peace with all men. I don't think that that's contrary. And sanctification, we do spiritually want to grow. Yeah. We should have that desire as well. Yeah, but the only way you're going to be sanctified is by looking to Christ. If you think of I'm going to be sanctified by not sinning, you'll never get there. Yeah. You'll live in misery. Yeah, but the sanctification comes from God, from God's Holy Spirit. Yeah, well, you're right. Scripture already says we are sanctified. Okay. And I'm we're not, being not, sanctified. Not, not debating. I'm yeah, no, no, I understand. They, no, these things need to be nuanced in the right way. We're not talking about the outworking of these. We're talking about sort of 
you know, what gets the whole thing going in the first place. Mm. Um, after all, it says back in verse 4, they haven't faced martyrdom yet for their faith. Back in verse 4, when it talks about in your struggle against sin, you've not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Again, if we're not aware that the sin in here is apostatizing or unbelief, or staying in Christ, then what? Or how are you going to read that? In your struggle against lying, you've not resisted to the point of shedding your blood, like people are going to kill you for, hey, this guy just won't lie, let's kill him, right? Oh, oh this guy's just, this guy just won't steal, let's get him. <laughs> no, no they, they, haven't, they haven't been martyred yet. They haven't died for their profession of faith. Um, so it, it's, it's not an admonition to just get along with one another, and, and the, at least not primarily, but the, the, specifically, if they don't learn to live with peace with the people that are persecuting them, what difference does it make if they live in peace with people that are persecuting them? That's a no-brainer. It's easy to live in peace. If you can't live in peace with people that are decent to you, pretty good chance you're the jerk. <laughs> right? But the, but the fact is, we live in a whole world full of jerks. Including us. I mean, we could be jerks too, but they're going to be jerks that come after you for your faith eventually in some way. And there are subtle ways. I can't begin to imagine all of them. But there are subtle ways in this world where people come at us because of our faith, insult us, put us down, make fun of us. So, you know, whatever. Just, just the way people talk about Christianity in general. You know, when people say stupid things like, you know, if you believe in God, you might as well believe in the flying spaghetti monster. Right? That, that's an actual thing somebody used at one point. Well, that's a belittling of us. Nobody likes to be belittled. You know what I mean? Nobody likes to be made to feel like, oh, you're some sort of inferior idiot for believing that, such, such and such a thing. That we, we, we do internalize those insults a little bit. We do let them sort of get under our skin. Um, again, God forbid they want to come and take our property or our home sometime. You know? Um, it's, it's, not, it's getting closer and closer to that in our culture. A little by slow, there are little signs that... Uh, that are happening in general that once they decide that Christian belief is behind an awful lot of things or in their mind, then we're going to feel it in new ways that we haven't yet. Okay? So, I may not be the obnoxious, you know, uh, what's his name, the Yiannopoulos, the guy that he just got banned from Facebook, and Alex Jones, right? Alex Jones is a little bit of a moon bat, space shot. If you don't know who he is, he's a conspiracy theorist guy and all this. Uh, I'm sure he's got some things to offer, but he, he is all conspiracy and all the time and all this stuff. And well, he's been deemed dangerous, right? So, and I'm not saying we should defend uh, it. You know, first, uh, you know, freedom of speech and all that stuff is definitely be eroded. But to me, the important part is eventually, I think Christianity is going to be recognized as a driving force in speaking against what the government insists, whether it's through the public schools, academia, you know, whatever. It's coming. I would, I mean, the signs are there. Yeah. You know, I think Christian ideas, they haven't already been deplatformed. Hmm. If someone's preaching the truth about uh, touchy subjects in society today, uh, they're going to take you off whatever social media is, yep. you know, whatever. Sure. Is a lot of. Yep. There are plenty of other good reasons to be wary of social media to begin with, but it depends on the person's constitution. In response to your uh, comment, how Christians are kind of almost bizarrely in mm. terms of our worldview, and uh, but that doesn't mean that the world doesn't have its own bizarre. That's part. Uh, that's a fact. I just yeah. heard something on the radio this week that was just like the, the two men that were responsible for DNA oh, discovery. Yeah. Yep. Uh, was asked the question. Um, uh, 
where did all this come from? Mm -hmm. And this is a near quote. It came from outer space. Yes. Spores came from outer yeah. space from potentially yeah. other aliens. Yeah, it's called panspermia. Yeah. Panspermia. Know, it's the the, the earth, like earth was seeded by life from other planets. Yeah, th th I mean, there's just no evidence for it. Yeah. And, and these guys are brilliant, right? goes back to that thing. You're the smartest, you're the dumbest smart person I ever met. Yeah. Right? Watson and Crick are geniuses. I mean, they figured out the DNA code. Are you nuts? Uh, so again, how do we strive for holiness? And Wally was referring to it. And again, it's not by not sinning. We don't strive by not sinning. We're putting the cart before the horse there. It's by considering and looking unto Jesus. We want to be conformed to His image. Conforming is God's work. We are His workmanship in Christ Jesus. Amen. Right? So fight the good fight of faith against the temptation to abandon Christ or to apostatize. Right? There is no holiness outside of Christ. None. There's no little bit of holy. There's no I'm half holy because I'm... No. You sew the temple curtain back together and you don't get to the Holy of Holies. Right? That's what they might as well have been doing. They might as well have said, hey, let's get the sewing kits and head over to the temple. We're going to sew that veil back up. Can't get, that's right. Can't get to the Holy of Holies if you do that. If you don't know what I'm referring to, it's when Christ was crucified and, and, and the, the veil in the temple was literally torn in two from top to bottom. And that veil that was always there was a reminder that you cannot approach the Holy of Holies in the Old Covenant. God is very unapproachable and extremely dangerous in the Old Covenant because of who we are, right? And who humans are. The Old Covenant was all it was about, always about warning and stand back. The New, the new Covenant is like, come. So endurance is looking, right? And looking is enduring. Endurance is looking and looking is enduring. This is God's project. And by grace, by grace, by God's grace only, we are a doctrine of, doctrines of grace church. <laughs> by God's grace only, are we a sovereign grace church. Right? Dr. Michael Heiser, living holy should be a response of gratitude and wanting to be useful to the Lord. It should be a response of gratitude for something given to you freely. It shouldn't be, okay, I've got to keep remembering to do this or that so that God loves me. And now, and so He loves me enough that when I die, I'll get to heaven. It's not that. Holiness is about a lot of things. Earning your ticket to heaven is not one of them. But that is the way. When those two things are preached in tandem and you don't take care to articulate their relationship correctly, they get blended in people's minds and salvation, the freest thing in the world, becomes an unbearable burden. I've seen this happen. I've seen preaching where this constant haranguing about sanctification the wrong way is a drilling into people's minds. You gotta not sin. You do it. What are you doing? You know what? Uh, I remember once I heard a pastor say, "You know, if if me and the elders were to come visit your homes, what would we see?" And I want to drag him off the pulpit, kicking and screaming, and throw him into oncoming traffic. Right? I did. I just was like, "How dare you say that?" You know? Who are you? I mean, you know? He's like putting himself in the elders in some category, but you might as well be a Roman Catholic priesthood. That kind of thing is dangerous. And that kind of thing comes from the pulpit quite a bit. Not in doctrines of gracious churches, for the most part, you know. Um, yeah, so we, when the gospel becomes a burden, people will flee. Right? I mean, it, it's not a burden, but when it's preached that way. And this leads to verse 15, which is another verse that, wrongly understood, will lead to frustration and, and, and to the frustration of legalistic, grace-abandoned thinking. Legalistic, grace-abandoned thinking if we don't get this verse correctly. 
See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Um, that may have been happening here with the Hebrews. We know they were not maturing as they should. They had to be taught the basic principles again. The first few chapters let us um, to understand that many were considering Moses and the law and the angels, etc. Some were legalists. They were all misunderstanding spiritual beings and their purpose. They were growing weary because of persecution. But the only other option offered was a system of belief that left them feeling like they could never please God. Never do enough to be accepted by God. I'm, I'm out of here. Verse 15, the ESV, sadly, has a potentially fatal flaw in the way that it translates the Greek. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Could anything sound more frightening or legalistic? What about Cain? Oh, I, I really have to make sure uh, I acquire the grace of God. I have to make sure I get it. That's a terrible translation. Here are the better translations. The NIV. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. Mm-hmm. J.B. Phillips, the New Testament in modern English. This is an oldie paraphrase. Be careful that none of you fails to respond to the grace which God gives. The King, the King James. Look, and I like this one best because it uses the word looking again. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. That's probably the closest to the underlying Greek text. The Christian Standard Bible. That's the one that's put out by the Southern Baptists so that they can have their own Bible. (laughs) Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God. The New American Standard. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. The Greek text is see to it that no one fails from the grace of God. You see the difference? Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, verses 4-5, through You are severed from Christ you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. You've stepped outside the realm of grace. See, for through, he says, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Christ's righteousness. We're waiting for that final thing. So, to rely on anything other than God's grace is to fall away from grace. So, the way that... The, um, the translators chose to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Is You think of it obtaining something. You think of acquiring. See to it that no one fails to acquire the grace of God. That, that can, if you already have a wrong understanding coming into the book of Hebrews, that's not going to help. Oh no, what do I got to do to get you know the grace of God? Do I, do I, okay, good. I finally, for the most part, stop that sin after all this time. You know. Oh yeah, but... And then, you'll, you'll, and then, then the enemy is still whispering... Yeah, but you still drop that F-bomb here and there. Yeah, but, you know, the way you said that to your wife the other day. Boy, the way you lost your, your patience with the kids the other day. Yeah, it's like, forget about it. Bitterness is a symptom of grace withdrawal. <laughs> Bitterness is a symptom of grace withdrawal. Again, uh, Phillips, be careful that none of you responds to, uh, fails to respond to the grace of God. For if he does, there can very easily spring up in him a bitter spirit, which is not only bad in itself, but can also poison the lives of many others. I like that. All right? So someone's falling from grace and they're making noise about it in some way. 
They're complaining. They're expressing despair. They're sharing their bitterness somehow. <laughs> Bitter people are not living in secrecy about their bitterness. Everyone knows who's bitter, right? I mean, bitter people are well known for their bitterness. <laughs> it's how we know them. And so that bitterness is toxic in an environment where there's persecution and people are talking about leaving and go, talking about going back to Judaism or talking about, maybe again, maybe it's they don't understand the gospel and so they're, they're talking about, oh, I can't, you know, I'm never going to be able to do this. I can't do this. I can't be the kind of Christian that pastor wants me to be. I can't be that person. You know what I mean? No, you can't. First of all, you shouldn't be the kind of Christian your pastor wants you to be anyway. He's twisted up enough of himself. But bitterness is what happens when you take away grace. And it can happen to any of us. I mean, we, we do have times where, you know, we kind of, we just like step outside the realm of grace. It's like a room we walk out of, you know, and we find ourselves in this sort of spiritual fog. Of, and it impacts others. Other people who are struggling. Other people who are in sort of the early stages of bitterness. You're going to help get them there. The full-blown bitterness. Where grace is missing, so is love. Where grace is missing, so is love. And so, there's going to be self-centeredness, and there's going to be agendas, and there's going to be... Right? What a price. What a cost. How precious grace is. And it, and it takes the entire body to see it. We need to see it. That's why I, I don't think this is just, you know, to the individual... Uh, make sure no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by, men, by it many become defiled. Others in the body have to recognize this. If we see bitterness for some reason, I think the first thing, if we see a bitter Christian, I think maybe a good place to begin diagnosing if there was such a thing as a, uh, an ultrasound machine that could determine whether grace was in the person. That's the first thing we'd want to do. Right? Is have a graceogram. <laughs> right? Put that person under graceogram and see if they're living in grace. To see what's ha- well, why, why are they bitter? What's what's going on with the person? Why have they become embittered? Are they outside the Christ? Have they never really understood the gospel? Um, are they thinking about leaving the faith? You know, it, it takes spiritually trained people to. Re- yes. Usually, like you said, the Christians that I have seen bitter usually the core problem is is they're examining the lives and relationships of their own experience rather than mm. God's. Isn't that horrible? So therefore, now God, they don't realize they're they're compelling God to think like them rather than them to think yeah. like Christ. In this it's a tricky thing. I think also um, bitterness is a result of pride. Yeah. Because there's yeah. a lot of pride involved. In yeah. When you step on my toe, I'm mm. going to be very bitter because you hurt me. Yeah, yeah, and, and 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 again, also, what is pride is another fruit of stepping out of grace, you know, or, or grace is not having its its effect on us, and we got to figure out why. We got to diagnose it. We got to treat it, so to speak. We got to treat it. Um, we are all guardians of the gospel, right? We together, are guardians of the gospel. What a what a thing that's been entrusted to us. <laughs> My marble friend over there. Right? We're guardians of the gospel. It's an amazing thing to have this. You know, and we do know, like Paul said, we we've got this in, in earthen vessels, right? I mean I read a tweet someone said this week, I don't know who it was. Was it Tim Keller? He said, Yeah, we're cracked vessels. And and we always think in terms of, you know, that means we're you know, we're not really fit to 
But the cracked vessel also let people see in, and, and, and there's a light there that can come out of that that is not our own. I thought, yeah, that guy just took dominion over that verse. That guy's infected with grace. Um, but when you go on Twitter, that's always your best grace moments anyway, right? Because you can fake it. And people people think you're all kinds of holy, and you, you know they don't know that you just kicked your cat a few minutes ago. <laughs> so what about these last two verses? That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Uh, I could say that the author knew what was about to happen or the bitterness was setting in. You could say he saw it coming. Oh my goodness. He saw it coming. He saw people, people are a mess. Anyway, so um, Esau, you remember Esau, right? Somebody give a look. What happened with Esau? Give us that little narrative. Give us that story. Someone. Esau was hungry. Yep. Yep. He was a red-headed, hairy, hungry guy. Right? Came in, right, Hunter. Came in from the field all exhausted and everything, you know, sweaty and hungry and... Right? He comes and says to his brother, he says to his brother, his brother who? Give me some of that stew. Right? And Jacob, you know, sort of a snake in the grass in his own way, give me your birthright. Now, Jacob had to know Esau, right? He had to know I can get anything from this guy. I can get anything from him because I know he's got a worldly appetite. There's sort of nothing holy about this guy. He's got no pursuit of holiness in him. He's got no... Not that Jacob was by any means a paragon of virtue, right? But he had to have known. I mean, he didn't just take a chance with that. Hey, give me your birthright, you know? <laughs> Jacob wanted that birthright. He wanted that blessing for himself, Right? And he also knew Esau's weakness, I think. Um, so, uh, he, and, and so, you don't know it here. The way it's worded is, you know, we don't remember reading. We didn't read in the Genesis account. We don't read about um, the sexual immorality of Esau. But there are a number of Jewish writings that suggest that Esau was, among other things, sexually immoral. So we don't see it in Scripture. Uh, but it is out there. And so, uh, you know, things that may not be inspired writings, but accurate nonetheless, right? You don't have to be inspired scripture to have truth in them. So, um, so these two things, and they kind of they kind of go neatly together, you know, uh, to just show how Esau was so void of any sort of spiritual depth. How he just had no, he had no desire to know the things of God very well. He didn't even consider his fathers. I mean, you know, Isaac, he didn't even think of Isaac's sort of life. And all, what had he been taught? But, but in any case, Esau had done nothing to earn that birthright. Right? He had no say in the order which he was born. Alright? Uh, it, it was a grace given him. It was a grace given to him and he despised it. He traded it for one meal. I mean, the, the birthright of the firstborn was intensely rich. You got the best of everything. Double portions, right? Todd, you got, you got all kinds of great... I mean, there was... But he did, that meant nothing to him. The fact that he was born first, he didn't think in terms of God's sort of sovereignty in that, in that, in that bringing it about. So he just sort of traded it off for a meal. 
Jacob must have made a pretty mean stew, you know. Um, yeah, for, for us though, for the modern audience, it, it must be repeated that legalism and attempts at conforming to a set of ethics as a means of pleasing God will only lead to frustration. Eventually, one may come to despise what they think is the gospel, but what really is no gospel, as I was talking about. And will easily trade it off. That's why it's so important that the gospel be presented as it really is. This is why there was a danger in them being immature and not knowing the reality of the gospel and, its, and, and, and what it means and who God is and what it meant that Christ was a superior priest and a superior covenant. All these things that he wanted to teach them about Melchizedek but, but couldn't because they weren't ready yet. They were in danger of misunderstanding the gospel and taken off. And they would have been taken off from a gospel that really wasn't the gospel to begin with because they didn't understand it the right way. What a task this guy had. What a task this guy had in writing this letter. Wow. This must have been one of the hardest letters. To, one of the, I mean, you think of all the things you see in Scripture. And I haven't thought this through. I'm just very impulsively saying this right now. But this had to be one of the most difficult situations for the writer to think through and know how to approach without setting the thing on fire. Right? Taking a difficult... This thing was, was, a, was a minefield that he had to walk through. Right? This must have been such a... It's required so much thought and prayer and everything. You know, remember, inspiration isn't just sitting there writing in a trance. Oh, yeah. It's God using that person, their study habits, their skills, their gifts, everything. Esau could not get his birthright back. Only one person gets the birthright. You can't... It's, once you give it up, that's it. And he wanted the blessing. Now, this does not mean that if someone walked away from Christ and later wanted the crucified, risen Messiah Jesus, he couldn't have him. If somebody walked away from Christ and at some point really wanted Jesus as Messiah and wanted it and wanted it, but God said, no, no, you walked away. No, that totally contradicts everything we know about the grace of God. If somebody wants Christ generally, for all it really means, the truth of the gospel at any time, if they want it, it's theirs. Now, the problem is, as we've seen, Remember from Hebrews 6, that, that serious warning, the language of impossibility. Okay? One would have to unreject what they rejected. So grace is what leads to belief. If you walk away from that, you walk away from the only thing that could bring about your repentance, which is grace. But nobody's. So we want to make careful. The, the point of this Esau thing is not that if you walk away from Christ. Doesn't matter even if you really truly want him again in the truest sense you can never have him again. That is not the point. The point is the seriousness with which we need to consider what the gospel of grace is. We have other texts that tell us that it's going to be well, it you know, that word impossible in the Greek comes up in other places, like Jesus used it. You know, what is impossible with men is possible with God kind of thing. But but the reality is if you walk away from grace, you walk away from the only thing that can bring about your repentance anyway. It I, I, you just what more can be said about that that's why the warnings are there that's why the warnings are what they are but I just want to make sure we don't take this to mean that if we came to you know uh, you know, if such a person said they, they left they never understood the gospel of grace in the first place the right way or they they, they said I'm walking away from this and they, did, and they truly walked away if something if God did a, another work of something in their life if they were to come fall before God and just cry out to Him for His mercy and His grace, God would be like, no, you blew it, you had it once, you're out of here. No, that's not what that's teaching. What it's teaching is, 
a despising what you have, and, and, and in order to and in order to despise it, you have to know what it is, and, and then go on and not want it anyway. Yeah. I think that where the author really wants his readers to go is the place where Jesus asks his own disciples. He says, "Will you leave me also?" Mm-hmm. Right. So where are we going to go? Mm-hmm. You have the words to eternal life. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so we have to make sure that the, the individual needs to make sure of that, and believers need to make sure of that. By the way, I don't think it would ever be. I think that the walking away from grace is such sort of a final act that it isn't that God couldn't. It's just that we wouldn't expect that to sort of happen. The point of it isn't that God wouldn't. The point of it of all of this is we have to consider the seriousness with what they were about. They were to be considering the seriousness about what they were about to do. Yes. We also have to remember that it's, it's not. We're, ta- we're not talking about an issue that's just up to us. That's exactly right. Like there is a uh-huh. very real element where God will give somebody up to that which they desire uh-huh. and let them go. Yeah. Um, and if He ever does that to anybody, uh-huh. they're not going to turn to Him. Uh-huh. You know, so that could also be what God does. Uh, Don't know. I mean, the text doesn't say it. Right, but we it's like in a Romans one kind of way, God can judge people in that way. Right. He, he gives. Un- uh, in that case, He's giving unbelievers up to a reprobate mind. Right. But maybe they came back. Maybe some would come back later. Maybe they wouldn't. But I, I, the only point I want to make about this is, if such a person were to come back to God, God wouldn't say, "Sorry, you're out of here. You had your chance. You blew it." He's the one drawing them. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So we, the, we, we can conflate two different things where they don't belong. Conflated. The point of this is the seriousness with which we consider the grace that's been given to us. And you can't seriously consider the grace that's been given unless you understand what that grace is. And you can't understand what that grace is if you're piling your own sense of how do I please God? How do I do this? How do I, how do I, how do I? That's why he started out with it. Oh, you got to get away from the... Yeah, Moses is great. Yeah, the angels are cool. But you got to get beyond that. There's something much greater still. If you rely only on that, you will miss the grace. Because the law came through Moses, but grace came through Jesus Christ. That's such an important difference. Um, last comment here. This is from Milton Vincent's book, um, Gospel. Uh, what is it? The Gospel. A Gospel Primer. Okay? A Gospel Primer. He says, The Gospel is so foolish, according to my natural wisdom, so scandalous according to my conscience, and so incredible, according to my timid heart, that it is a daily battle to believe the full scope of it as I should. There is simply no other way to compete with the forebodings of my conscience, the condemnings of my heart, and the lies of the world and the devil, than to overwhelm such things with daily rehearsings of the gospel. Daily rehearsings of the gospel. Great little book, by the way. (coughs) Gospel Primer, it's called. Milton Vincent. All right. I would say that we're all done. Unless anybody has another question or comment. Let's see if we can get uh, Brother... Oh, hey! She snuck one in at the last minute. Okay. Conversation you two have. Yes. So that means that if you were um, a Christian walking with the Lord and everything and then you stepped out of the grave... And you never came back. It could either mean that God said enough, enough, 
Or you were never a Christian, a true Christian to begin with? Yeah, and I don't think Scripture tells us one way or the other. I mean, at one point Paul says, yeah, they went out from among us because they weren't one of us, but I think we use that too broadly and say that that therefore means they left because they were never Christian to begin with. Maybe in that case there was something, but Scripture doesn't tell us the why or the how. It just tells us that if you do, the impossible, the difficult, you walk away from Christ and there's nothing else to go to. And that's the main. It doesn't matter whether they ever did or didn't. In a sense, we can muse about those things. But, you know, sort of to what end? The, the main point remains that this book of Hebrews is all about running with endurance the grace set before us. All right. I also think that I may be wrong that Esau's wife displeased his parents. I think it says it in Genesis. But mm-hmm. I might have them mixed up with another thing. Yeah, he was not... He, I mean, you know... He thought nothing of the whole birthright. He thought nothing of anything, really. A merry unbeliever. He knew a good stew when he had it. food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bev, would you mind praying for us? Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to come together that we have a church where it does preach the gospel of grace and we're taught it in a 